Here we are. We're in 1 John chapter 1. Should be verse 8 up on the screen. There we go. All right. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what we need to do is talk about, <clears throat> pardon me, self-deception. And this is not a, uh, this is not a new topic um, Probably for you in your own life and pursuits, you've encountered this idea of self-deception before. Um, It's not a new topic from this pulpit. I've addressed it before. Uh, But it is something that I've really, I've had to put an inordinate amount of thought into to understand and apply. The... um, the, the idea <clears throat> that you can be self-deceived requires, I think, an impossible state of mind where the one deceived is also the one doing the deceiving. And I don't understand how it can be, how, how I can be, Like at the same time, intentionally holding a belief that's not true while I know that the belief is not true. The the deceiver, if you're the deceiver, if you're deceiving somebody, you have to be aware that you're deploying a deceitful strategy. Right? So if you are, are, as the deceiver you are also simultaneously the deceived, then you must be unaware of the strategy that you're deploying in order for it to be effective. So we throw around the word self-deception. Oh, he's self-deceived. I deceived myself. But if you think about it, it's a bit of a paradox. And I I don't entirely understand... Well, I think, I, I think I'm a lot closer now. I, I don't believe we entirely understand what we mean when we use this uh, hyphenated word. Because if you have to be both deploying and duped by the same thing, then ultimately, self-deception requires you to avoid interacting with any evidence that contradicts the story that you're telling yourself. So you make a a decision to evaluate information just enough that you realize it's going to impede your ability to continue to believe a lie. And then as soon as you realize that's what that information is going to do, you shove it to the side and ignore it. You're not really, like, are you really self-deceived? Well, the difficulty that I have is, left to myself, I would say no. You're not. But the Bible says it's possible. And if that you know, weren't proof enough for me, we all have a mountain of experience with self-deception, right? Usually we only see it in others. But 
the more self-confrontational among us will admit that they've seen it in themselves. <clears throat> so let me tell a story. Ah, this was not this church. This was a previous, the previous church that I served at. There was a family that came and joined, and uh, they were with us for some months. And uh, I didn't have a lot of interaction with them, but I had enough. And because I was on staff and just the way we did things there, um, when somebody had a benevolence need, uh, one of the preaching elders would usually be at least in the meeting. When, so, so let's say you have a financial crisis and you come to the church to get financial help. Um, it would be a couple of deacons, and then one of the elders would sit in on the meeting to you know, understand what's going on and see if this is a real need that the church should provide benevolent relief for. So this family had been with us for a few months, and they had a, a need arise due to some you know, poor financial decision-making, and uh, you know, we, we ascertained the need, and we filled it and, and you know, made sure that they were taken care of and disaster averted. I don't remember how much time went by from that moment to the next encounter I had with the husband, but it wasn't more than a couple of months. He asked to meet with me after service on a Sunday, and so we sat down together, and he let me know that they were leaving the church. And uh, I was like, well, this is a surprise. Why are you leaving? And he said, because you don't believe that once you become a Christian, you stop sinning. And I, I said, well, the Bible doesn't believe that. And he said, no, you're wrong. We're, once we're saved, we are sanctified so that we don't sin anymore. And people that do still sin, they aren't saved. And I came this close to saying, so did you just figure this out in the last two months, Mr. Financially Responsible? This is a person who's self-deceived. I believe I've quit sinning. So much so that now I have to go find a church full of people that believe the same thing. The problem is, James 3.2 says, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So we can just start right here. I don't sin anymore. Okay, here's a recorder. Keep it on. We're going to listen to it after 24 hours, and I'll let you know if you don't sin anymore. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Uh, nobody. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I recognize that the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, this stuff is 
Um, it's poetic in its design, so we have to be careful. Sometimes we shouldn't be prescriptive in its application. But I, I think if you take Ecclesiastes 7.20 and put it in combination with Proverbs 20, verse 9, James 3, verse 2, and 1 John 1, 8, or Romans 3, where it, like you've got enough verses that say all people sin, right? And there's no verse that says until they meet Christ and then it ceases. It doesn't say that. And that's what John's addressing, the fact that the, the Bible doesn't say that. So these passages, <coughs> excuse me, i got to quit singing during worship because then I come up here and my voice is all wore out. Um, these passages are all banging the drum of truth in order to wake us out of sleep of self-deception. So we, we've been living in a culture for the better part of half a century. I first heard about this in the fourth grade, so this would have been... How old are you in fourth grade? Eight? No, you're, I was nine or ten in the fifth grade. I was smarter than a lot of people, though, so just kidding. Uh, almost got held back. Uh, fourth, fourth grade, I had a friend in, in my class that was going through some kind of an emotional crisis at home, and um, he wasn't in class for uh, like a couple of subjects one day, and then the secretary comes over the intercom and says, Mr. Brown, can you send James Tyler down to the office? And, you know, the panic. Because there are so many things that I had could have been caught for. You start listing it in your head, like, which thing is it? And so I go to, I trundle down to the office, and there's my friend in the counselor's office, and and so she shares with me that he's struggling because of some things that, you know, I'm not going to know about. But could I be his peer, P-E-E-R, counselor and, and just be somebody that would encourage him and, and, you know, just be a good friend? I'm like, well, I don't know why we need the official title, but I can do that. And then she went on a little talk about self-esteem and how important it is and that was my first encounter with it. So that would have been 88, 89. Um, our culture is trying simultaneously <clears throat> to tell kids that they're wonderful just the way they are. And you should follow your heart. Um, and you deserve good things. Right? This has been, in my experience, I'm not saying absolutely, but in my experience, this is the top-down kind of heartbeat of our culture. You have a high self-esteem because you're wonderful. Follow your heart and you deserve good things. On the contrary, says the Bible, you're a sinner. Which is the opposite of you're wonderful, follow your heart and you deserve good things. If self-deception depends on the unwillingness to look at any evidence that contradicts your preferred belief, how do you suppose this works when it comes to your own sinfulness? I'll let you think about it. Actually, I'll say it again. Because now you know I'm going to ask you to think about it. Maybe you want to know what I just said. If self-deception depends on the unwillingness to look at any evidence which contradicts your preferred belief, 
How do you suppose this works when it comes to your own sinfulness? How does self-deception work when it comes to dealing with your own sinfulness? What must you refuse to look at in order to be self-deceived? Two things. I want to deceive myself. Let me help you out. Here's how you do it. You refuse to look at the standard. And then you refuse to compare yourself to that standard. That's the key to self-deception, which is not what I'm supposed to be teaching you. So let's look together at Isaiah 6. If self-deception depends on the unwillingness, your unwillingness to look at evidence that contradicts your preferred belief, how do you think this works when it comes to your own sinfulness? And the answer is you've got to do two things in order to say that you have no sin. You have to refuse to look at the standard and you have to refuse to compare yourself to that standard. So Isaiah 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah is thrust into this vision, or perhaps actually into the the heavens themselves, into the throne room of God. And he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So one of the self-deception tactics we employ is really cool. We're smart enough to to know that it's not healthy uh, to refuse to examine ourselves. In fact, our culture is kind of into this right now, self-examination, through therapy or whatever, uh, or medicine even. So one of the cool things about uh, self-deception, one of the tactics we employ is we do that. We examine ourselves. So then we think we're being self-confrontational. Right? Like, oh, I'm dealing with what's there. But we use a faulty standard. Right? So I examine myself, but then what I compare what I've found here to is somebody worse. Okay? Does that make sense? In the Isaiah narrative, 
Isaiah, I don't know if he goes to sleep. I don't know if he's just walking along. And then all of a sudden he is thrust into the very presence of the King of Kings and Lord of hosts. He has no one except some seraphim. He has no one else to compare himself to. In that moment, he beholds God. Note the outcome. Woe is me, I'm undone. Now, if I had been there, and Isaiah were thrust into the presence of God, he at least could have looked at James and gone, well, at least it's not that bad. Which is what we tend to do as human beings. We'll just find somebody worse, and then I go, so I mean, it's not great, but it's better than that. So I'm okay, or I will be. Or here's three things I'm going to fix in 2024. Whatever, right? If you, if you, if you picture Isaiah in the throne room and the experience that he had, let's do it this way. This will help you. If you could thrust the politician or bureaucrat, which you most despise, into the throne room of God, they would be pretty humbled, wouldn't they? Or maybe, I, fill in the blank, somebody that you really struggle to tolerate, if they were in the presence of the throne room of God, they would be humbled, right? Okay. Now, um, look at Luke 5. Luke 5, we'll start at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter's reaction uh, suggests that he had rightly attributed the haul of fish To the person Jesus. Okay? Fascinating then that his response is to identify his own sinfulness. Isn't it? How do you suppose he makes the connection? And here's what I'll tell you. There may not be, I might be lazy and I just didn't figure it out, but there may not be a good way in human terms to draw a connection between what Peter experienced and the way that he responds to Jesus. There might not be something consistent in psychology or human experience that I can point to to go, and that's why. But I can tell you this, what happens when we actually engage with Jesus' power and majesty 
is you become aware that you're in the presence of holiness and it illuminates your own sinfulness. Just like what you see in Isaiah 6, Peter, because of the experience of this blessing of fish, realizes he's in the presence of holiness and the next thing that happens when you realize you're in the presence of holiness is, by contrast, a quick furtive glance at yourself and you go... He's that good, and we are that sinful. So imagine if the person you find most difficult to tolerate could encounter Jesus and be forced to see his holiness. They would be humbled pretty quick, wouldn't they? Of course, what I'm doing is illustrating the point by contrast. What, what we should do is imagine that we are thrust into the throne room of God. Imagine that we have an encounter with the man Jesus in, in, in all of his presence and all of his power. What would be shown of us in that light? The reason it's difficult for us to open our Bibles and read them day by day, whatever point of the day you've set for that practice, or maybe it's every three days. I don't know. I'm not up here to make, right? I'm not, I don't have seven steps to better Christianity in 2024. You read your Bible regularly, I hope. Why is it so difficult when that time comes to sit down, get it opened up, get the eyes down into it? Why is that? The reason is because we don't like what that mirror shows us. The reason that it's easy to skip church over like the most minor inconveniences is because it's harder to deceive ourselves when we're confronted with the contents of Scripture. Now, if I just got up here and gave you a motivational speech, we would have, I think I could do it better than Joel Osteen. I think we'd have 40,000 seat stadium. Okay, that, that's a little pompous. I probably can't do it better than him. He's been doing it longer than I have. But that's not what we're here doing. We're here being confronted with Scripture. And that's why we're better than... No, that's not what I'm... <laughs> We much prefer comparing ourselves to someone else than to the standard. We would prefer to say we've not sinned. But what if we looked in the mirror instead? What if we looked in the mirror instead? What would we see there? Imagine for a moment <clears throat> that the Bible's right about you. Imagine Isaiah is, is a better person, a better human than you. What would happen if you stood in the throne room of God? The Bible's right about you. Isaiah's better than you. Cool. Can we agree to that? At least it's possible he's better than, than, than I am. He's better than me. How's that? What would happen if you stood in the throne room of God and all of your self-deception got stripped away and you got confronted with two truths? First, that he is entirely, completely morally pure. 
Second, you are you. Isaiah and Peter had similar responses to being confronted with reality. The light shined on them and they realized immediately what the truth was. And that was that they had no business honoring themselves. What would happen to you? Verse 9, 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The fact that verse 9 and all that it promises follows immediately after verse 8 and all that it threatens should encourage you. The Holy Spirit paints a picture of what's happening when you refuse to confess your sin. Okay? I know this is boring. Try to stay with me. It'll be worth it. The Holy Spirit paints a picture for you of what's happening when you refuse to confess your sin. Self-deception. Or the closest, that's the closest English translation we can get to the original text. The truth is not in you. So what does that mean? <clears throat> if the truth is not in you because you've deceived yourself, what's the outcome? Now think with me, please, in terms of human experience. What's the outcome? What happens to your priorities when the truth isn't in you? What happens to you psychologically when the truth is not in you? Are you not, if the truth is not in you, are you not going to be psychologically encumbered? If the truth is not in you, aren't you going to be heart sick? Aren't you going to struggle to properly evaluate the world around you? Don't you think your relationships will suffer? Don't you think your heart will be filled with anxiety and anger? Don't you think your nights will be filled with sighing and frustration? The truth's not in you. Of course those things are going to happen. Your days will be filled with acting and pretending. Your favorite things will turn to ash. Your pleasures will be like gray and vacant. You can't succeed because the truth's not in you. You can't progress if the truth is not in you. You, you. you can't really feel joy if the truth is in you. You'll have momentary happiness. There'll be things that'll happen where you'll be like, yay. And then as soon as it's over, and you know I'm right about this, as soon as the thing that you've been waiting for and hoping for happens, you end up depressed. You can't have joy if the truth's not in you. You can't overcome trial if the truth is not in you. You need your circumstances to change. I'm telling you, if the truth is in you, you can have joy and overcome trial without your circumstances changing. If the truth's not in you, you can't focus. You don't think right. You can't sustain your own weight. You can't find anything to be hopeful about. You can't be honest with yourself. Do you suppose if you can't be honest with yourself that you're being honest with the people around you? But by all means, I mean, and, I don't, and this is not me being sarcastic, go to therapy. Do it. But know this, the greatest therapist on the, on the earth cannot help you if you cannot be honest with yourself. So God warns what happens in verse 8. Say that you haven't sinned, you deceive yourself, the truth is not in you. And then in the same breath promises what will happen if you confess in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Proverbs 28, 13 the wisdom literature says it this way. Whoever conceals his transgressions 
will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I reminded us last week that confess means to say the same thing, right? So um, the, the, the way we deceive ourselves, the, the, the manner through which or by which self-deception happens is we leave so we leave what we know we are ignorant about unexamined. So you know it's there, and you know you don't really know what it is, but you're just, you make a decision, and I don't, I'm not going to find out. I'm not going to investigate that. So where there's sin in my life, I try not to look at it. I try to ignore it. I try not to think about the effects of my sin. I try not to think about the outcome. I try not to think about the impact on my relationships. I'm not examining the thought patterns that lead to the sin. I'm not contemplating any of this because I want to leave all of those considerations tucked away in the dark where I don't have to deal about them. So I have to fill up my time. I have to fill up my time because my mind might wander to considerations of this thing that I do that I love. And maybe it's evil. I mean, I probably know it is, but I haven't really looked at it. So I don't want to find out for sure that it is. My mind will wander. And and if if my mind is allowed to really think about it, I might get convicted. And if I get convicted, then I'll be accountable. And if I'm accountable, then I have to stop doing the thing that I love doing. And if I have to stop, I probably can't because I love it. And if I love it and it's bad, what does that say about my claim that I'm a Christian? So let me just not look at it. If I don't look at it, I don't have to deal with it because I don't know how to deal with it, right? I don't know how to deal with it. And the result, I get sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. Fear, shame, and guilt accumulate in my heart. I try to hide. I try to hide. I try to hide from the thing. I try to hide the thing. Don't look at it. Refuse to examine it. Hide from God. Flee accountability. And God knows all of this. God knows this about you, and he knows this about me. So in the garden, after Adam and Eve first hide from one another, and then he comes walking through the garden, and they hide from him, what does he do? While they're trembling in their fig leaf underpants, what does God do? He searches for them. And they hide from him. Don't deal with the thing. Don't let it come into the light. As long as it's not in the light, it doesn't have to be dealt with. And what does God do? He grabs a hold of them and he drags it into the light where it has to be dealt with. Examine it. Call it what it is. Did you eat from the tree of which I told you? And what does Eve do? Eh, or no, it was Adam first. What, is, what does he do? It was the woman you gave me. Uh, I don't want to look at it. And then Eve, Eve's like, it was the serpent. And God's like, you too. The serpent didn't eat the fruit. You did. I didn't tell him not to eat it. I told you not to eat it. 
Got to call it what it actually is. And then what does he do? He tells the serpent, cursed are you more than any other beast. You're going you're to slither on the ground. You're going to eat dust. And you are going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But he's going to bruise your head. And there's this promise So God drags the thing into the light where everybody can see it, call it what it is, and then he promises to deal with it. I'm going to redeem you from this curse. How does he end up doing that? Well, why don't you let me take you to the courtyard of the high priest right now? In John 18, 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me. What have I said to them? They will know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck him with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I not say what you wanted to hear? He's dragging it into the light. Jesus answered, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Let me take you to the governor's palace. When Jesus is being questioned by Pilate, John 18, 37, then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Oh, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what's truth? So Pilate has him flogged, crowned with thorns. And then turns him over to the will of the people. For what? For what? For calling things by their proper name. This is how God deals with the curse. This is how he deals with sin. So let me take you to the cross right now. Let's let's go behold the Son of God hanging on the cross, dying. What was his crime? What did he do at the end of the day? He told people the truth. You tell people the truth, and it's enough of the truth, and you do it enough. I promise you, this world is heading for a place where we too will end up on crosses. Let me take you to the tomb. Why is the body of Jesus laying here? What did he do? Why did he have to die? Because if he doesn't die, you can't deal with the truth. And the truth is, you are a breathtaking sinner in desperate need of cleansing and forgiveness. Let me take you to the third morning. The stone's been rolled away. Behold, the tomb is empty. 
Why is the tomb empty? Why isn't he still in there? Because the light shined in the darkness and the darkness, glory to God, could not overcome it. So this is the invitation of the gospel. Quit hiding. Quit pretending. Quit refusing to look at what you've done. If the way we deceive ourselves is we leave what we know we are ignorant about unexamined. The solution is to examine it. You must look at it. You must turn your face to it. So God invites you to freedom, flourishing, and forgiveness. And your part is really simple. You take a long, hard look at what you have done. Examine it. Look at the damage done by your sin. Look at the carnage. Drag it into the light. And you'll hate it. Confess it. Say the same thing about what you've done that God says about what you've done. Call sin by its proper name. Do that. All right. Then what happens? If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. Enter all the consequences of the truth not being in us, which I've already gone through. If we confess our sins, say the same thing as God, he is immediately faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Drag it into the light, Look at it and say, that's what that is. What, I'm not going to give you any ideas. Your thing is your thing. Get it into the light. Call it what God calls it. And he's faithful and righteous to cleanse you and forgive you. We will get into the forsaking sin part next week. Right? Children, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. But for now, understand self-deception requires refusing to examine the thing. Confession requires examining it. The promise of self-deception is that the truth won't be in you. The promise of confession is that you will be in the light in unbreakable fellowship with your heavenly father. I think it's a pretty easy choice. My hope is that we'll be a people who have the faith and the courage necessary at least a little bit at a time, to stop deceiving ourselves. Amen? Let's pray together.